1: Karen Pugliese, professor of journalism at Ryerson University, former APTN news boss and former president of the Canadian Association of Journalists. Welcome back to the show. Happy 2021 to you.
2: Thank you, Ryan McMahon, my
1: man. Today on the show, we are going to talk about a CBC journalist that was let go from their job for calling out Don Cherry's racism. And it turns out that a person anonymously tipping us at Land a story is, in fact, acceptable journalistic practice. It's nothing personal against you, CBC. We're also (laughs) going to talk about Maclean's publishing Canada's power ranking.
2: power, power. <laughs> Who cares? We're not on the list, Ryan.
1: Let's get the show on the road. Thanks for being here, Karen.
2: Thanks for having me, Ryan.
1: Today's episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Anton Lauder, Jennifer Zito, Estraven Lupino-Smith, Nathan LeMay, Adam Pomblad, Mason, Brent from Poise Coop, and Jesse. I'm
2: Jesse from Toronto. I'm a business analyst and I support Candleland because investigative journalism is super important for our country and I appreciate that Candleland is trying to do it differently than everybody else.
1: This past week, a grievance was settled at the CBC and the Canadian Media Guild by an arbitrator. We need to make a disclosure here. Canada Land employees are members of CWA Canada, and CMG is a local of this union. Anyway, the arbitrator found that the CBC was wrong when they fired reporter Amr Khan. He tweeted a single word, vindicated. And for those that need context, back in December 2019, the CBC fired Amr Khan after learning he'd been Canada Land's confidential source for a story. This story was about how Khan was told to delete the tweet where he called out Don Cherry for being a racist prick. Karen, can I read this to you? <laughs>
2: Yeah, sure. Although he didn't say racist
1: prick. Well, I'm saying racist prick. So (laughs) the tweet, thank you for that correction. This is a show about journalism after all. The tweet reads, it, it long due time for Don Cherry's Coach's Corner to be canceled. His xenophobic comments being aired weekly are deplorable. You know why black and brown kids don't enjoy hockey? Because of the deep rooted racism, which we get to hear every single week on national TV. Now, this was related to Don Cherry's long-winded rant, which he's made yearly uh, since I was a kid, about immigrants not buying poppies and supporting the troops. Amir Khan tweets this, and boy, oh boy, was this decision hilarious. Uh, Karen, did you dig into the decision at all?
2: Oh, yeah. I, I read the decision. I want to start out by saying thank you for reading the tweet. And I know part of this whole thing was that he tweeted an opinion. I can't find anything in there that's actually not factual but let's proceed.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's a dicey dance, folks, inside of the CBC and other media organizations sign There is a responsibility back to the organization to represent yourself and thusly the organization appropriately online. Let's get into this decision here, and then we'll kind of talk a little bit more about kind of the ethics and and standards that journalists are, are, are meant to uphold when working for these organizations. One of the critiques of this decision here that I thought was was funny, if I could read uh, very quickly, many people might find it ironic, even amusing, that a news organization would be surprised and indignant that one of its own employees used the same technique to give a story about the CBC to another news outlet. I am one of those people. So when this happened, Amir Khan thought, well, this is a media story that I think should be covered. He felt pressure from inside of the CBC and needed to release that pressure somehow. What do you, What are your thoughts, Karen, on him going to Canada land and ultimately to Andre Demise of McLean's uh, with this story?
2: You know what? Th- this was a thing that I thought really cost the CBC. It was the irony of what they were saying he did, that he was harming the reputation of the CBC by doing this. The arbitrator took a look at it and said, He didn't say anything bad. He didn't say anything untrue. He just felt he'd hit a wall inside the organization and he whistled, which is something that journalists like encourage people to do. And I will say I have had staff inside when I was the news boss at APTN Mm -hmm. um, who actually Ran to Jesse sometimes on this very show with insider stuff. Sometimes they were on the mark and sometimes they misunderstood things. But, you know, Jesse would go through his fact checking process and he would cover or not cover. And I never once tried to find out who they were. I mean, half of the time, I think I kind of knew. But this is our reporting culture. This is what we do. Um, We take things that are in the public interest and we put them out. We speak truth to power. And when you have journalists and you tell them, go out and speak truth to power and you're a newsroom leader, you can't say, but not when it's me.
1: Right. And, you know, upholding the... You know, the good name of the CBC um, is a full time job. You have a lot of employees, a lot of journalists, a lot of people that are on short term contracts that feel vulnerable inside of their positions inside of the CBC. And, you know, when when feathers are ruffled and you're kind of feeling expendable, I mean, how vulnerable do you think that makes one feel? And especially in the moment we're in, where we're talking about representation inside of the newsroom and, and, you know, in, in editorial positions perhaps and how we're kind of changing the conversation in Canadian media as it relates to our expectations of being in the room. I mean, this is an example of a young journalist that that had precarious work and was willing to stand up for what was right at the expense of his job, knowing that any type of criticism back towards his his employer was 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 going to at least land him in some hot water.
2: Yeah, I think it, I think it's good. Like you'll know Ryan that I also did a case study Um, I was asked to by um, the UN on indigenous women in journalism. And I talked to 15 women Mm. and we did like a little six page paper on their experiences. Mm -hmm. And what's happening is you have places now where journalists in the industry, BIPOC journalists who are now picking up and also taking on that role of media criticism. So you've got Desmond Cole, who's always really outspoken. You've got uh, Asma Malik, who often writes for J-Source. Uh, you've got Shri Podkar from the Toronto Star and uh, Manish Krishnan from Vice. And so you've got these different places that you actually can go. And I think that's healthy. I, I mean, if you're going to be a newsleader in this industry and, and not just quote unquote a boss, you have got to be able to put up your grown up pants and take the same kind of criticism and feedback and have the same kind of self-reflection. That you expect the people who you cover to have.
1: That's right. Now, to to sort of continue on where the arbitrator gave orders here, he ordered that the public broadcaster offer to reinstate um, him for the four months remaining on his contract, or if Khan declined that offer, to simply pay him out uh, for the four months' salary. And I think it's important for the record, like let's let's set the record straight on this. They discovered Khan leaked. This story after a colleague went through Khan's personal social media accounts, right, mm-hmm. and and that he he he'd left logged in on a on a shared computer, and and this evidence was turned over to a manager who then went through the account themselves, and so I think there's a number of decisions that were made here that definitely, you know, crossed the line in in terms of Khan's privacy. And as part of the decision that I'm quoting here, I agree with the union that if employees could lose their jobs for privately criticizing their bosses, even in crude terms, this country would be facing a severe labor shortage. (laughs) This was pretty damning stuff in terms of uh, what was ordered here by the arbitrator.
2: Yeah, well, I think also I want to talk about this issue of privacy, because I think it's important for young journalists. Okay, there's two things. There's the issue that you raised. I'm well aware that I sometimes pissed off my staff, and they would go out and have drinks. And I don't know what they called me, but probably nothing that
1: (laughs) you wouldn't imagine. Probably not news boss. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, probably not two spots. <laughs> Maybe another B word. Right. Um, but, I mean, they would also come to my office. And even since I've left there, sometimes, you know, like, not everybody agrees with some of the the stands that I take in the public. And, you know, Melissa Ridgton will sometimes call me up and chew my ear off and stuff. And it's all fine. You know, like, you don't have to agree with people all the time to care and respect for each other, right? They're separate things. But the the issue of privacy was one that I thought um, was really interesting in this. So, So you're right. He left, first of all, young journalists, get your own phone and computer and don't check your personal stuff on company property. Don't do it. That's fair. I'm just putting out there as good advice, because what it actually says in this case, things were popping up on the screen, And that was one thing. Somebody saw that it was open and some messages popped up on the screen. But then they persisted to search through his stuff and sort of what the the cause that they were looking for was, um, it was kind of like what the arbitrator kind of said was like, it's like a hammer to swat a fly. So that was where the privacy breach came. But I can tell you as someone who ran the newsroom that there are cases where if you do things with company property, Um, that are inappropriate, you may not get the same results that he did. The other thing is, we've had situations uh, where I've worked, where people use company property in committing a crime. And uh, we we were able to gather evidence on it. I don't want to get too deeply into stuff because people are going to say, well, which which company was that and who was it? And I, you know, <laughs> all this stuff is sort of secrecy, but I, I can't say that much. So be careful what you do on company property, young journalists.
1: Hmm. Well, and it, it's interesting, you know, like the, the security protocol um, you know what 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 are people supposed to do when they come across a laptop or a or a work computer at a workstation that might be shared by staffers? You know, what does the protocol inside of the organization say? You know, should you come across that. Do you do you text message your coworker and say, hey, man, can I log you out of this? You, you've left your chat open. Is it uh, you power down the computer immediately upon seeing it? Is there a way that we can ensure that our coworkers aren't going back months and months in our private messages to find the dirt or, or to cross over into private messaging, I think was really, really a, a, a terrible decision by this other young journalist. And so so I wonder you know, I wonder what will change in that way if there is some sort of noted protocol that will be pronounced and if if other organizations are following. What has been your experience in that way?
2: You know, it, it's interesting because I think um, a lot of the times there was stuff happening. And, and some of the stuff is some of the stuff that actually I think ends up um, going around becoming rumors in the industries because people are reluctant to tell the boss. Like nobody wants to whistleblow on their colleagues. So there were stuff sometimes going on with staff that I wasn't aware of because they don't tell on each other, you know, Mm. generally they have each other's back. But I think it's also hard, like it depends what it is that you come across. I think that the rubber hits the road at management. If somebody sees something and they're saying, I wonder if I should report this, this seems pretty serious. Let's take it away from this example and say that you were a young journalist and somebody left their uh, social media open and you noticed that they were harassing or sexually harassing somebody, would you report that? Do do you bring that to the manager? Um, What if they, you see that they made a death threat? What if you see they're using work computers to, I don't know, look at porn or something, you know, um, some of these things are serious and maybe you do want to report them to management, Mm -hmm. but you really have to have that sense of management that what you're intruding on and what you're stepping on, you know, on balance is serious enough And I think also the other thing that came up was that a lot of the screenshots of messages and stuff were cut off. And a few times during the arbitration, CBC management admitted that if they had been aware of the full context of the message, it wouldn't have been a problem. There were there were a few items like that, like um, where they misunderstood the context.
1: Right, it's uh, it's it's messy to say the least. Um, let's land this plane and just say that you know the CBC's current position in a statement on its website, um, the union has said the CBC has informed them that it's reviewing the ruling and has not yet determined if it will seek a judicial review. We did try to get, uh, Amir Khan on the show. It looks like he is not doing media as of this time. And I think his, his single word tweet vindicated probably says about all he wants to say at this time. I'm sure there are other processes happening behind the scenes. And, um, I guess, to be continued. I mean, we will, we will continue to follow this and, and kind of see how all of this, this lands. I, I'll end with a question to you, Karen. Where do you hope this might lead for newsrooms? What kind of conversations do you think this spurred inside of newsrooms just as sort of a safety and a protocol review? What do you think is a best case scenario where we come out of this thing uh, with newsrooms across Canada?
2: You know, I, I, I've tried to spark a conversation in newsrooms that they just keep doubling down. Hmm. Um, a few people sent me some internal emails that have been passed around by CBC management, and they're kind of doubling down on this and saying that everything they did was appropriate. Going through the messages wasn't, you know, unprofessional. So the thing that kind of s- started this all, I think, is around that journalistic policy and the way BIPOC people don't have safe spaces to express themselves in newsrooms. Hmm. I think that's an issue. It's a current issue. And I I don't think that conversation is happening as much as it needs to. So just got to keep pushing.
1: There is a a, a statement uh, from the Canadian Journalists Anti-Racism Coalition that was co-signed by the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, Canadian Journalists of Color, Executive Team, Media Girlfriends, Journalists for Human Rights, Coalition of Women in Journalism, Canadian Journalism Foundation, and the Canadian Association of Journalists. We will link to it in the show notes. The title reads, The Clear and Present Danger of Blanket Impartiality, and one of the 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 polls that I took out of this was uh, from their statement was neither con nor any other journalist should be reprimanded for denouncing racism. Doing so is in the public interest. And that's where we'll leave this story
0: today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Karen,
1: as you know, as a a guest on this show many times, you know that we duly note things on the show. Mm -hmm. And this week I do have uh, two quick ones. One, Biden is being inaugurated. So the next four years we're going to hear about how terrible Trump was and how mediocre Biden will be. So brace ourselves for that. I don't have anything else to say about it. It's just happening and we should probably just say it. But the other thing that I want to duly note is this article that came out from Angela Starrett out in British Columbia. And it was filmmaker Tamara Bell, who's calling for fines, jail time, and more for people that are pretending to be indigenous inside of the film and television industry. Did you see this article?
2: Yes, I did.
1: So what Tamara Bell is pointing to here actually is U.S. legislation, which is known as the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, passed in 1990, which is basically a truth in advertising law that makes it illegal to offer or display for sale any art or craft product in a manner that falsely suggests it is Indian-produced, that carries up to $250,000 fines or five-year prison terms. So as it relates to... Michelle Latimer, Joseph Boyden, and many others, allegedly. This is an interesting, if not aspirational, thing to consider. Where did you land on this one, Karen?
2: Um, I don't like anything that gets the government messing around in our identities anymore. Uh, We need to have governance over that. I know you know all this stuff, Ryan, but quickly, for non-Indigenous people who may not know this... We used to identify who belonged in our community and the government took that power away. They based it first on eugenic racial theories of supremacy where certain people and even amongst white people, some white people were more superior than other people. Um, This led to sterilization of people with disabilities, indigenous women, and it led to how you identify who's indigenous or who's First Nations and who's not in the Indian Act. So uh, once upon a time, people like my mom, she would marry a non-Native guy and they would take away her identity because she now had a white man to take care of her and she was considered a ward of the state because Indigenous people were inferior. If you had a white woman marry a Native man, she was marrying a ward of the state. So they would make her uh, an Indian under the Indian Act. So, So we've had all this mucking around And I I think in terms of identifying people who qualifies for these, you know, funding and uh, these other things that are given out to Indigenous people, it's very messy for the federal government to get involved. I think that there's also cases where um, I'm thinking of people who are adopted out sometimes, I'm there's one young woman who I worked with, she was adopted out and grew up uh, ultimately in child welfare, and Mm -hmm. her case files closed. So she knows who her mother is, but she has nothing to say until that file is open that she's actually indigenous. Right? I don't know how you solve this. What do you think?
1: Well, I I just I agree with you. I don't think I don't think we need the federal government getting involved in our lives any more than they already are. And uh, I don't know, I certainly am not proposing like a round of trivial pursuit. For Indigenous folks that want to make movies, it's like, sit down. (laughs) Spell Gordon Tatousis. And uh, we don't need to be doing that. I think uh, the fake identity question is going to be a lot harder to pull off for those that are trying it in the coming years. I think that the community is really paying attention now. I think those that are trying to get away with those identities are in a panic. I know for certain... And boy, is this juicy leaving my lips that uh, native Hollywood is in a panic because there are so many that have gotten away with this for so long. So I will publicly disagree and I will say we don't need the federal government more involved in our lives than they already are. And that's all I've got to say about that.
2: Duly noted.
1: Karen, you have a duly noted for us.
2: I have a couple. Okay, <laughs> But but one of them is really uh, just a, a shout out. Uh, did you know Carl Edwards, formerly of McLean's Magazine, but now doing native media down in the US, is a Nieman Fellow?
1: Oh, very interesting. Yes, that's exciting.
2: Yeah, one of the nicest young men that I've met in the industry. He's great. So I wanted to congratulate him on that.
1: Absolutely. Congratulations.
2: I also just wanted to point out, do you realize the irony of having to niche like us on a show called Canada Land?
1: <laughs> it's, it's never been lost on me.
2: Can we change the name of the show?
1: <laughs> uh, well, sometimes when I'm joking around, when people go like, oh, you do stuff for Canada land, I go, yeah, Canada Ugh, land. <laughs> it's, 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 it's hard to say Canada in sentences sometimes, depending on my mood. So, yes, I, I, the irony is not lost on me.
2: Okay. So, <laughs> I, I I will say only this.
1: Yes. <laughs> Reclaiming all the digital territory, scaring Jesse Brown in his sleep. More of that, please.
2: Canada land on native land. yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, So, yeah. So um. there was a video that uh, Angel Moore at APTN tweeted out and they did a story on it uh, last night. And I know, Ryan, you've been on a few shows, um, I think even here on Canada land where you were discussing the attacks by commercial fishermen on Mi'kmaq fishermen out on the East Coast. And I I guess I thought that sort of once the fishing season finished, things would kind of calm down. But um, Jolene Marr, who's uh, a lobster fisher person, I guess I'll say, um, she received a video on Facebook in her private messages, and it's a close-up face of a man. It's a, a white guy, and he says "fucking Indian." And then there's these sounds that some people have said that they think are gunshots, but I think he might be knocking on a door. I'm not sure what it is, but it's the it's kind of sent in this way that it feels threatening to her. She's been outspoken on the uh, fishing. Uh, issue. Her brother was uh, the young man who was trapped in the building on October uh, 13th when it was surrounded and he live video streamed everything out. Mm -hmm. I I was talking to Angel. I was just saying like, how isolated is this? And she says there's a lot of people making fake accounts or uh, double accounts and still doing a lot of online harassment. Uh, People are being followed. So, you know, I'm just noting that it, you've got the sense, because I guess it's not being reported on much anymore, that things have kind of returned to normal, or quote-unquote normal, to hmm. previous previous levels of harassment, right. and uh, they haven't. It's still going on.
1: Right. Well, this is where we will point people back toward APTN who have journalists out there uh, full-time reporting in those communities, and also our friend Maureen Gugu. At uh, Cuckoo So if people are looking to follow those stories, there are journalists out there covering them. So duly noted. Karen, our final topic uh, for this episode. I'm having a great time, by the way. Thanks for doing this with us. I, I, I always love chatting with you. You make me laugh and we get silly. And we're about to get a whole lot sillier because I don't know if you've seen this McLean's power list. Power, power. Power. Did you see uh, this thing?
2: Yes. Well, I knew it was on the show, so I would never read these things. <laughs> but now it's like, you know, a traffic accident. I had to look at it. Here we go.
1: <laughs> Excuse me, you would have not clicked on the power list had you seen this online? No. Tell me more <laughs> about that.
2: <laughs> <laughs> these are just such a bad idea. Like, who's like the number one was Trudeau? Like <laughs> I I I guess you kind of have to. He's the prime minister. And uh, I think it was Paul Wells that wrote that one. And he's kind of saying, well, yeah, but, you know, um, he's in a minority government and he still acts, you know, like tough and stuff like this. (laughs) And I'm like, that's because he's privileged.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. You can act however you want when you're a powerful white man in Canada.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's not like when he he stops being prime minister, he suddenly broke or something.
1: <laughs> right. I mean, and and by the way, like where are you going to put him? Number thirty two. Like he kind of has to be near the top.
2: That's right. And then once you have him on, you have to do this political thing because right. you are media, and we're concerned with balance. Right. And and so automatically, the opposition leaders go on.
1: Right, right.
2: right. Like, yeah, With, what, what does it mean if you don't put on the Conservative opposition leader? Oh my God, you're going to get called out. So, so he's on there, NDP's on there. There we go.
1: There you go. Now this list, I, I don't know. I have a hard time believing that this numbered list tells me that this is in a particular order. I was hoping that it was just kind of a randomly generated order that just kind of goes, here's 50 Canadians uh, that Canadians should know the name of for these reasons. But it turns out, It is a ranked list. So, Karen, if you were to sit around the table, how the hell are we ranking these 50 Canadians to get a ranking from 50 to one? How how is this happening? Rock, paper, scissors contest? What are we doing?
2: I don't know. I I think it is politicized. I think that they take a look and then they... Um, they, they put, you know, like the politicians on, like I said, and then they go, Oh, we don't have any people of color. So, so let's put some of them in. We have to have some women. We have to have some men. I'm sure those discussions go, go into making the list. And so it's not actually a real thing. I I mean, having said that, I mean, I was happy to see Desmond Cole on the list. In reality, he'd be much higher in my list because I'm telling you, his book is on every reading list, um, in university right now. Absolutely. yeah, there's a whole generation of people who are coming out seeing a, a new worldview on things. So, I mean, on my list, TP Hires, happy to see some niche on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesse Wente, Marie Sinclair, uh, Cindy Blackstock. I think there are a few others.
1: And we should also say at number 41. The New Newsmakers. It's a totally generic category that Canada Land, if you read the very fine print. I didn't see that!
2: Canada Land (laughs) it. Yeah,
1: it's it's kind of a throwaway line. It's not a big deal. But the line that really stuck out at number 41, the New Newsmakers, as the big guys get little, many of the little ones are getting bigger, 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 bigger. So, the, yeah, Canada Land and, and uh, The Logic and, and others that are, are, have turned online to create these, these, these digital properties, a good tip of the hat to them. But where it gets interesting for me, so like, I, I, look, I think that uh, this sells magazines and McLean's through all of the fire that, that, that print media has gone through over the last handful of years is still around. So I want to tip the hat um, to McLean's and say you're still here uh, in spite of everything we know about the state of of media in Canada, magazines in particular. So they definitely... Uh, deserve that acknowledgement, but, but I feel like these are the issues that keep these magazines alive, right? You remember the ones with all of the conservative leaders on the cover. We uh, we print like the list of the most racist cities in Canada. We do like the best universities in Canada. I feel like these lists are uh, uh, are money in the bank. Karen, is that why we're doing these lists?
2: I, I don't know. I, we we did some lists, I think, for a little bit at APTN because we were we were kind of just testing out could we get more clicks? And then at at the end of the day though, um, getting more clicks, I always said, if we want to get like really popular at APTN, I know exactly how to get more clicks. We should stop covering Indians. Um, We should start covering (laughs) kittens. Um, I I think it's a problem when news agencies go for clicks because, you know, entertainment is more popular than news. There has to be a certain amount of news that's eating your broccoli.
1: That's right. That's right. I agree. And there was some troubling things in this list. I mean, to me, it was it was just really a, a, a tasteless uh, inclusion of Joyce at uh, Shaquan.
2: Oh, I was wondering what you thought of that.
1: I just I just want to say, uh, Joyce's life should be celebrated uh, for many reasons. Um, but the fact that she, you know, she died the way she did with a total systemic failure um, that we now know is is a growing conversation in Canada. The report that came out in B.C. as it relates to indigenous uh, experiences in healthcare, one that will soon be coming out of uh, northwestern Ontario. I mean, the fact that she died in that way and she's included on this list, it definitely rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, I don't know where it landed for you.
2: I I felt, like, very similar. I I was going to bring that up if you didn't. Um, (laughs) I I read the – there's sort of an intro where they explain why she's on the list, and I feel like they were making some attempt to honour her or honour her her legacy. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, realize that of all the Indigenous women that you you did put on the list further down – well, not all, because there weren't that many Mm -hmm. – or could have been on the list that you didn't put on the list, that the first one you put on the list was – is a is basically a deceased woman. Yeah. You know, it, it. It. I know you didn't mean it that way, but how? How do I feel that we get valued in in society? How do I feel like our news, like our names, hit the paper, mm-hmm. um, more for our deaths than how we live? You know, it, it does hurt, even though I think their intentions were good.
1: No, abs- abs- absolutely, and 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 I, I. This is even it's 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 dangerous to talk about because this will upset people. But I mean if you're going to put joyce Echequan in in this list in this way and acknowledge yes that i mean the last graph of of her her blurb that was included in this this bio in the list does say that you know her her call that she was making while in that hospital to be cared for and and to have the same type of care and access to care as, as other Canadians is being heard loud and clear still to this day. I hope you Macleans continue to follow this conversation in your magazine and and not just leave this acknowledgement here because it, it, there's something that I'm not articulating very well that that just does not sit well with me here.
2: I think I've got it. This was is supposed to be a celebration of movers and shakers, right? There was mm. nothing celebratory about what mm. happened to her. I think that's the, that, that's the part of it. That's off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Rest in peace to her and our, our thoughts, uh, our thoughts to her, uh, to her family. And, and again, you know, Absolutely. it's lists like this, that no matter what you do, I mean, I suppose we're telling people to pay attention to movers and shakers, pay attention to these people, but, uh, yeah, that one that one was a tough one to swallow. That's your Canada land shortcuts. You can email Jesse at Jesse at dot com. He reads them all allegedly. I don't know where he finds the time, but you can email him. We're on Twitter at Canada land. Where can people find you, Karen?
2: Uh, You can find me on Twitter if you can spell my name. I've I've tried a few times to do this, and I think uh, maybe just put it in the show notes. You can't spell any of my names. It's too hard.
1: All right. Hit the show notes to connect with Karen online. Our website is canadaland.com. This episode was most excellently produced by Tiffany Lamb, with additional production by Kevin Sexton. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us.